Chris, you want to thank you again for coming this morning and really have grown to respect and appreciate your passion uh, for such a great ministry. And just want to encourage us again as a church family that this is a great way to contribute to our community. And uh, the building will be hard to organize in terms of us going together all in one mass. More likely, we're going to grab two or three people and sign up and go together. So I'd encourage you to do that. But I do think it'd be great for us as a church uh, for a group of us to kind of fix up some breakfast burritos and be able to take those out to those who are working that day. So if you can't go on the work site, but that's something that you would like to help us lead in, then we could could use some folks who could help kind of organize that and take them to the workers who are out uh, building the houses. I think it'd be just a fun way for us to do something together as a church family. So if that's something of interest to you, let me know, and I want us to kind of start organizing and putting those efforts together. Uh, how many of y'all watched the show, I don't even know if it's still running, that Steve Harvey hosted called Little Big Shots? Anybody ever see that? I think I may be the only one who ever saw that show. <laughs> it is a show, right? I'm not making this up. No. I actually enjoyed it because I enjoyed, these, these kids had some remarkable talents that they would showcase But what I enjoyed most was the interview that Steve would have with the kids before they went and did their little talent, because you never knew what was going to come out of their mouth. I mean, it was, there was a show years ago called Kids Say the Darndest Things, the same same idea, just really funny. Kind of reminds me of the story of of a church service where there was this loud whistle, I mean, loud whistle, right in the middle of the pastor's prayer as he's closing the service. It came from the back of the church where this little boy was sitting, and the mom reached over and pinched the fire out of him to get him to stop and be quiet. And then a few minutes later after the service was over, she went to him and said, son, what in the world were you thinking? He said, mom, I was asking the Lord to teach me to whistle, and he did it right then and there. Kids say the darndest things. I mean, kids can be cute because you just never know what's going to come out of their mouth. But we kind of sort of cringe whenever we see the same thing happening with adults when it comes to our prayers, right? It may not be as silly per se, but they can be just as self-centered. And I'll be honest, I'm as guilty as anybody because far too often my prayers center around me. My needs or my people that are close to me, and and it just becomes kind of a me fest. And that's why I think this prayer this morning is so refreshing, because it doesn't end with me. In fact, it doesn't even begin with me. It is all about God and rejoicing, like we just sang, in his goodness, which I hope you will see and find that it is remarkable giving the context in which this prayer was spoken. Hannah had to have felt the weight of what seems to be a really difficult situation, and yet her heart sings literally with prayer and praise to God. And So I hope this is something that will recalibrate all of our hearts when we go before the Lord in prayer as well. So before we look at this, let's do just that. Father, as we come before you, we do confess that very often our prayers can be all about us, our needs, our wants, our desires, and we don't often stop to recognize who we're talking to, 
the one who deserves our praise and our thanks, to recognize your kindness and your goodness, your mercies that are new every morning, to see you as the one and only true God, holy, worthy of our praise, exalted high above all things. Lord, would you recalibrate our hearts this morning as we look at an example that I believe you call us to follow. So we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, in order to appreciate this prayer, we really kind of need to understand it in its context. So if you would, go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel. and We'll begin right in chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Samuel. So Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. Um, Chapter 1, verse 1. Just follow along with me as I read. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim, Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim. And his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children. But Hannah had no children. Now, I hope as we look at passages like this that what you begin to learn as we unpack them together is things that you can be looking for whenever you look at Scripture yourselves. Because in these first two verses, I hope you'll see there's a couple of things that should kind of jump right out at you. The first one is in verse 1 where you see this list of names. Now, Whenever you see a list of names in Scripture, it's typically trying to tell you something important about a lineage, about generations of people. And in this case, it's a lineage about a man named Elkanah. Now, if we go to uh, another passage in Scripture in 2 Chronicles, we see this lineage unpacked even more. And so listen as I read 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verse 33. It says, these are those who served with their sons. And, it, and here's kind of the origin. From the sons of the Caetes were Haman the singer, the son of Joel, the son of Samuel. And here it is. The son of Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elel, the son of Toa. Now, from Scripture, it's important to understand that the Caetes had a very important role. These were Levitical priests whose responsibility was the handling of the Ark of the Covenant. So significant responsibility, right? And what we're learning from this passage is that this is the lineage that the author in 1 Samuel is trying to point us to, that Elkanah comes from this lineage, of the Caetes. You may remember when David was bringing the ark back from the Philistines to where it belonged in Jerusalem. And you remember that it began to topple, so somebody grabbed it to brace it. And what happened? He died. And it wasn't just because he touched the ark, it was because he was not one of the Caetes. They had the wrong people doing the wrong job. And as a result, they suffered the consequence. The the Caetes were directly appointed by God to do a very specific task. So what this tells us is that Elkanah came from a very important priestly lineage, which will be significant as we see unfold in our story. 
Now, the second thing I hope you noticed that jumped out at you as you looked at these first two verses is that there were two wives listed for Elkanah, which I need you to know right up front, not sanctioned by God, okay? This was way outside of his divine design. But it became a social norm to deal with the issue of infertility. So Hannah was his first wife, but Hannah was unable to have children. And so as a result, he took a second wife in order to continue his lineage, which, as we will see, it's never a good idea to go outside the boundaries of God's design. And we see some of that unfold in our passage. Look at verse 3. It says, Now this man would go up, talking about Acana, from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And two sons of Eli, that's the priest, were Hophni and Phinehas, and they were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters, but to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly, talking about Penina, towards Hannah, to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her so that she wept and would not eat. So as a result of living outside the boundaries of God's design, you see this bitter rivalry taking place, really from Penina towards Hannah specifically. Because even though Penina was able to have children, the fact of the matter is, Hannah was Elkanah's first wife and apparently the one he truly loved most. We see that he gives special favor to her over and over again. And so this was what created jealousy for Penina. And so as a result, what she would do to get back at her rival would be mock her. Mock her for not being able to have children. Now, if you've ever struggled with infertility, as Terry and I have, you know how incredibly painful this had to be. It would be like pouring salt into an open wound over and over again. And yet, although this had to be profoundly hurtful to Hannah, there is no indication that she ever returned insult in response to what was spoken to her. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, to me, as we will see this story unfold, it was the first clue that Hannah is a remarkable woman, that there's something special about this person. Because here she was being marked, mocked by somebody in her most painful place, and she remained silent, even though it hurt her deeply. Let's look at how it continues. Go down to verse 9. Verse 9 says, Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant, and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days 
of his life, and a razor shall not come to his head. So here we get a glimpse of of Hannah's request in this difficult moment. And notice the way she refers to herself three times in verse 11. She says, look on the affliction of your maidservant. Forget not your maidservant. Give your maidservant a son. So it's a word that describes a a, a female servant, even even a female slave. And what's interesting here, it's the same word that is used by Mary, the mother of Jesus, in her prayer as well. Luke chapter 1 verse 48 says, For he, speaking of God, has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave, or we would say maidservant. So both of these women go before the Lord with a heart of humility. And what they're trying to communicate in this self-identification is they are not presuming that God owes them anything. He's not there to serve them. They are there to serve him. In fact, Hannah makes a vow to give back to God anything that he might graciously give to her. In this case, if God answers her prayer for a son, then Hannah will return that son to the Lord so that he might devote his life to ministry to the Lord. So in a sense, what she's saying here is that that she would be willing to offer a living sacrifice of her son. Then at the end of verse 11, Hannah says, and a razor will never come on his head. Now, that's an unusual statement that we would hear and go, well, I have no idea what that means. But in the Old Testament, it was a very specific identification of a very specific vow. If you go look at Leviticus chapter 6, it talks about what's called a Nazarite vow. Okay, And in this vow, somebody voluntarily devotes themselves to the Lord in a life of full, fully engaged ministry. But what's happening here is that Hannah is making that vow, vow on behalf of her son should the Lord graciously give one to her. But even as we look at this, we see that she is committing in this prayer. If the Lord were to give her a child, to raise him in order to release him. That that she would receive that gift in order to give that gift to the Lord. Which, Which, at least for me, when I'm reading this and thinking about what had to be going on in her heart. It seems like a heavy prayer, doesn't it? It seems like there's, there's a lot of emotion attached to this, but I want you to notice how she ends in verse 18. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman, talking about Hannah, went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So so what's interesting here is that Hannah went into this prayer very sad, right? She was distressed. She had a heavy heart. In fact, verse 10 says she was greatly distressed and weeping bitterly. So what that tells us is that Hannah went into this prayer an emotional mess, laying it all before the Lord. But after pouring out her heart, it says that she got up 
found something to eat, and then her face was no longer sad. Now, that's, that's a dramatic shift, is it not? Because we know that, that her circumstances did miraculously change. Very likely, when she walked right back into Penina, she did the very same thing she'd always done and mocked her to her face. So her circumstances didn't change. But God did something to change her heart. And here's the key. When Hannah brought her burden before the Lord, when she was done, she did not take it with her. Okay, don't miss that. She was honest. She was heartfelt. She brought her burden before the Lord. But when she said amen, she didn't take that burden with her from that place. She emptied her heart before the Lord, and he filled that emptiness with hope. And not because she, would knew, she knew the answer to God's prayer. She didn't. Remember, she is his servant. She doesn't presume anything. He owes her nothing. But she is giving him everything. Her heart was filled with hope, I believe, because she knew she belonged to God. She knew that he saw her affliction, that he heard her prayer, and that she could rest in his loving care. The, the picture I have in mind is Psalm 33 when it says this, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him, our hearts rejoice. For we trusted his holy name. I believe that that psalm describes the heart of Hannah in her prayer before the Lord. Now, literally about nine months later, Hannah has a healthy baby boy. And she names him Samuel. Look at what it says in verse 20. It says, it came about in due time after Hannah had conceived, she gave birth to a son. And she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked him. Him of the Lord. Then the man Elkanah went up with his household to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. So what we see here is kind of a scene shift where now Samuel is born, Elkanah, like he does every year, goes to worship before the Lord, offer a sacrifice, and it says also he paid his vow. Now, the only vow that we know about up to this point is the one spoken of by Hannah in that Nazarite vow. So that's likely what's being talked about here. But here's what's interesting. The law allowed the husband, in this case Elkanah, to nullify that vow of his wife if he did not disagree with it. But he did not cancel it, did he? Instead, what does he do? He confirms it. He pays the vow. Which means that he, like Hannah, is offering his son to the Lord. Much like Abraham, he's willing to obey even if it means losing a son. But as we see in our passage, not immediately because Hannah says that she wants to wean this child from her, which means 
that she wants to take care of nurturing him in ways that only a mother can. And it usually takes two to three years for that to happen. But when she finishes, she says clearly, and then I will give him to the Lord forever. And so that day comes, two to three years after this point, when Hannah, along with this only son, Samuel, and her husband, Elkanah, go to pray before the Lord. And I want us to look at that together in verse 24. It says in verse 24, Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour, jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. He's the priest who serves there in worship. And she said, oh, my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. For this day I prayed and the Lord has given me my petition, which I have asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord, and she worshiped the Lord there. So what we see here is Anna, Hannah fulfills her promise, but, but do you think this was an easy experience for her? You think she just waltzed in that day and, and carried out the fulfillment of her vow? I don't know about you, but I, I think it had to be a painful decision. Can you imagine? Okay, moms, just think about this for a little bit. Handing over your only son. Having not been able to have any children, weaning him for the next two to three years as he was nurtured at your breast as you comforted him and consoled him in his crying. Every moment and every day, you poured your love into his life and now You hand him over to a stranger. Can you imagine? I think that Hannah, although faithful to fulfill her vow, I think she expects something more. I think she knows something about God through her heart of complete and faithful obedience that gave her some hope of redemption yet to come. And we're going to see this kind of unfold in the prayer beginning in chapter 2. But here's how this is going to work. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. And I'm not going to put it up on the screen because I want you to just sit back and listen to this prayer of rejoicing in the Lord. And, And as you do, I want you to think about it in the context of what we just talked about, okay? So in your mind, picture this scene of Hannah kneeling humbly before the Lord as her one and only son has been passed off to the priest named Eli and she knows that she will not see him again in her home. So with that scene in mind, listen to her words. Then Hannah prayed, My heart rejoices in the Lord. The Lord has made me strong. Now I have an answer for my enemies. I rejoice because you rescued me. No one is holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Stop acting so proud and haughty. 
Don't speak with such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows what you have done. He will judge your actions. The bow of the mighty is now broken, and those who stumbled are now strong. Those who were well-fed are now starving, and those who are starving are now full. The childless woman has seven children, and the woman with many children wastes away. The Lord gives both death and life. He brings some down to the grave, but raises others up. The Lord makes some poor and others rich. He brings some down and lifts others up. He lifts the poor from the dust and the needy from the garbage dump. He sets them among princes, places them in seats of honor. For all the earth is the Lord's, and he has set the world in order. He will protect his faithful ones, but the wicked will disappear in darkness. No one will succeed by strength alone. Those who fight against the Lord will be shattered. He thunders against them from heaven. The Lord judges throughout the earth. He gives power to his king. He increases the strength of his anointed one. So given the context of what we've just walked through together, do you notice anything unusual about her prayer? I think there's a lot that's unusual about her prayer. And in particular, there is not a word mentioned about what she has lost. The prayer is filled, I mean filled from start to finish with what she has gained. Instead of sadness, as we might expect, we see that her heart is filled with joy. It says in verse 1 that she rejoices in the Lord because the Lord has made her strong. She has an answer for her enemy's insult because he has rescued her from despair. She's acknowledging that he is sovereign in his rule and infinite in his wisdom. And she knows that, that, that God is a God of redemption causes those who are starving to become full while those who are well-fed on their own end up starving. The woman who is barren is grateful for the gift of being able to have children. And those who take it for granted end up in despair, having to take care of all those kids. Her point is that only those who look to the Lord, who recognize that he is the source of every good thing, only those are the ones who are satisfied. Her gratitude is what fuels her joy. You see, pride robs us of our contentment. It is our enemy, but, but humility is what fuels our gratitude, and our gratitude is what stirs our joy. She's recognizing that all of life is in God's hands. And he brings low and he makes the poor become rich. He brings death. He brings life. But it's all according to God's plan and his purpose. She's just recognizing, look, there's, there's all kinds of things that are going on in the world around us. We have rich. We have poor. We have some who are needy, some who are not. But, but these aren't arbitrary things just happening on a whim, that there is a good God who is in ultimate control, working all things to accomplish a redemptive purpose. And I believe she has that in mind for her own son. Because there's a very curious way 
she ends her prayer. The very last line in verse 10, she says, He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, here's what's interesting. There is no king. There never has been a king in Israel's history up to this point. This is the time of the judges. This is when this prayer is spoken. It's the time when everyone was doing what is right in their own eyes. So what we see here is that Hannah is seeing something redemptive that is yet to come. One that will be God's anointed. One that will come from a royal lineage in order to bring redemption to the world. Does any of this sound familiar? I believe that Hannah is giving us a glimpse of our Savior. She wouldn't have known the details about the coming Messiah, but she was absolutely certain of God's promised redemption. The one who would sovereignly be in control and set things right. And isn't it interesting that God would do this by giving us Jesus, his only son, who like Samuel would have a a life devoted to fulfilling the will of God. See, in the end, Jesus is the ultimate answer to Hannah's prayer. He's the one that she was looking to. He's the one that was anointed by God. He's the one that came as a royal lineage through through the tribe of David. And then he is the one who brings redemption to all mankind. All that Hannah was praying for was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So as we finish up, I think there's some powerful examples that we can see from Hannah's prayer. And I just want to say right up front that one of the things that is important for us is to recognize the the role of women in God's redemptive plan. Look, there, there are plenty of times that we see godly women giving us examples that we should follow. This is one of those times. This is a prayer prayed by Hannah that every person in this room can benefit from and should follow as an example as well. The first thing I see that I think is important is the fact that it wasn't about her. The prayer wasn't about her. It was about God from beginning to end. Now, I don't know about you, but I'll just be honest with you and confess to you uh, here that that very often my prayers begin, Lord, will you? And then I start list, making a list. Lord, can you? And then I just make my list. I think what's remarkable about, about Hannah is that she begins and ends with God. And I think just very practically, let me encourage us to follow her example. And when we begin our prayers this week, would you consider focusing wholly and completely on God? And recognizing who he is and all of his attributes. So God, you are good, you are right, and you are just. You are the ruler of all things, and you are righteous in all you do. You are sovereignly in control, you have infinite wisdom. And yet you care about the details of our lives. Because you're kind. Because you're gracious. Because you're good. 
You have made a way through your son. You have given the greatest gift that we could have ever known, which allows us to come to your throne of grace with confidence. And so in knowing that's true, Lord, I pour my heart out before you. Do you see the difference? I would encourage all of us as we enter our time with the Lord and go to him in prayer that it begins and that it ends with God. Yeah, we we can put our request before the Lord because he calls us to do that, but may our prayers, like Hannah's, begin and end with God. The other thing I think we can learn from Hannah's example is is the impact that it made on her heart. Okay, so we see very clearly that when Hannah goes before the Lord, she weeps bitterly. She's an emotional wreck. She's not trying to to clean herself up to look pretty when she goes into God's presence. She goes just as she is. But in pouring herself herself out and in emptying herself before the Lord, she then becomes an open vessel for him to pour hope back into her heart. So that when she walks away from this prayer, she doesn't have any expectation that the circumstances in her life will change. The woman who mocks her will still meet her at the door when she gets home. She has no guarantee from God that he will answer her prayer and give her a child. But she can still leave that prayer, offering it into his hands, and then not taking it back from him when she walks away. So can we follow her example? When we begin our prayer before a holy God, recognizing who he is, then offering our petition before him, pouring out our heart before the Lord. But when we leave that time, may we not pick our burden up and then carry it with us again. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. He says later on, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he's offering you an exchange. Come, bring your heavy burden. I invite you. But when you leave, take something with you from me. And it's light. And it's easy. Really, we are going before the Lord and what we're saying is, I can't do this. But when we walk away, we say, but you can. And I entrust it to you. So begin and end with God. Pour out your heart, but don't take your burden with you. And then finally, know that no matter how bad things may be, we still serve how God would answer her prayer, but it didn't change how she saw him. And so may we not determine our understanding of who God is by what he does for us in our own calculation of what we think he should do, but trust him for who he is and how he has revealed himself throughout human history as being good and righteous and holy. And may we always hold out the expectation that in the end, he will make things right. I don't know how he's going to answer this prayer, but in the end, I do know he will make things right. So beginning in with God. Pour out your heart, but don't take your burden with you. And always have redemption in mind, 
he will make things right in the end. Let's pray. Father, we want to come before you and wait on you in hope. We want to recognize that you are our shield, that you are our help. And that's why our hearts rejoice, because we trust in your holy name. We know that many of our circumstances may not change, but we serve a God who works redemptively in our lives and fills us with hope despite the despair around us. So, Father, help us to exalt you above all, to relinquish our burdens before you, and to believe in redemptive outcome that you will make all things right. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together. So if you look in your Bibles over the heading in chapter 2, typically we'll say Hannah's song. It was a prayer, but most people believe that it was a prayer that she had prayed over and over and over again till it became a song. And I think for many of us, some of our best prayers are songs. I've shared with you before, (laughs) in some of my hardest moments, I can't think of prayers, and so I'll sing hymns. And I think those are probably some of the best prayers I've ever prayed, because all they are is about God and His goodness. My favorite is how great thou art. I only know a couple of verses. (laughs) And I sing them over and over again. So let me just encourage you as you spend time in prayer before the Lord this week, that it begin and end with God. And it may just need to be a song. It may need to be something like we just sang or some hymn that comes to mind, something that reminds you of who you're talking to. Because I promise you, he knows every detail of your circumstance. So you're not informing him of anything he doesn't doesn't already know. But sometimes we need to be reminded of who he is, right? So begin and end with God. Let me do that now. Lord, you are good. You are kind. You are holy. You are just. What are we that you should look upon us? And yet we are of great value and worth to you because you created us in your image for your purposes to live eternally in your presence through faith in your son so father as we leave now may we live lives of those who belong to you and those within whom you delight father as we come before you in prayer this week may we begin and end with you because that's where all life is anyway. It all begins and ends with you. And may we expect, look expectantly for redemptive outcomes when you make all things right. And until that day, may we be an answer to that prayer and do what is right in ways that bring honor and praise to your name. And it's in that holy and righteous name that we pray. Amen. Have a great day.